0: We're going to end strong, close to five, really close. Hopefully, you can stay to the sweet end. Um, a couple of logistical details. First, um, let's see, if you want to get continuing ed credits, uh, as a therapist myself, I know about this. So please be sure to sign out. Also, if you want me to send you the slides from this workshop, uh, please give me your email address. And um, unless you say just slides, I'll subscribe you to my stuff, and which you can always unsubscribe from. Also, if you do want to make a contribution, you know, it's as if there's some kind of weird shame about talking about Donna. I love Donna. I I love to give it. I love to receive it. You know, of all kinds. It's like if you're not willing to receive it, you break the cycle of giving. And giving is great. So if you want to give in one way or another. Advice, poetry, you know, dark chocolate, money—it's all good, you know. So do what moves your heart to do. So this, will, you know, before we end, that might be one last announcement. Um, I should add as well that Spirit Rock could use your Donna too, your generosity, time, attention, to, you know, and so forth, as well as roughly one in three lights in this room is on through donation. In other words, the fees at Spirit Rock only pay for about two thirds of the expenses here. I was on the board here for a long time. so And on the finance committee, where you really learn where the bodies are buried. Although that's probably not a Buddhist metaphor. But <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I really encourage you to think about joining me and being a steward of Spirit Rock, a monthly donation that just kind of happens routinely. Or support particular projects here, such as the building campaign. Or give the gift of your time you know, by being one of the volunteers at this program or other programs here. So think about that. Uh, Speaking of volunteers, how many of you are volunteers today? If you have a good, please stand up. Suffer through the embarrassment. Thank you, volunteers. Yay, volunteers. Right? And thank you as well, by the way, to our video and live streaming crew, you know, who get some compensation for this. But I know they're doing this for far beyond the... The financial aspects out of the goodness of their heart. I know them personally well. All right, so thank you again for doing this, and thanks to the people online. Great. Okay, good. All right, so more and more practical here, okay? I want to start with what I call unilateral virtue. And you've probably been in a situation or seen it as a couples counselor, I've seen it. As a husband, I've been in it, uh, where you're, you know, two people are grumpy with each other, and, you know, A and B, let's say, and A says to B, you know, you need to change. And B says, okay, I'll change if you change to A. And A says, you first, right? And there you are, kind of stuck. And so I really appreciate and have come to appreciate this notion of unilateral value for our own sake, as well as for the sake of other people. So we have a quotation here from the Venerable Tenzin Palmo, an English woman who's done a ton of deep practice in Tibet and elsewhere. She says, Wisdom is all about understanding the underlying spacious and empty quality of the mind, of the person, and all experienced phenomena. In other words, it's not that things are non-existent, is that they're made up of many parts and nothing has any kind of absolute existence on its own. That's what that technical term, empty, means. To attain this quality of deep insight, we must have a mind that is quiet and malleable, can be changed. And achieving such a state of mind requires that we first develop the ability to regulate our body and speech so as to cause no conflict. We may find ourselves in conflict, but we don't have to cause contentiousness or quarrelsomeness, that sense of what she means by conflict. right So you see the, the movement she starts at the bottom, you know what the Buddha called sila or virtue, sometimes translated or morality or restraint, you know so that we're not causing harms, we're regulating our thoughts, words, and deeds. so that we acquire a mind that is quiet and malleable so that we acquire and stabilize liberating insight. We start kind of from the bottom up. We've probably known people who had a certain degree of spiritual insight. Maybe they were really good meditators, but boy, were they a mess to live with or work with or sleep with, let alone all three. So, work from the bottom up. Buddha says here, too, it's so interesting, those who, there are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels. And it doesn't mean waiving your rights or falsifying your view of what's true. It means finding that quality of well-being and inner freedom and inner peace that is disentangled from the contentiousness. I remember reading um, a little clip from a Englishman who's now a Buddhist monastic and abbot, actually Ajahn Amaro. Some of you may know Ajahn Amaro. Ajahn is an honorific, like Rabbi. You know, Ajahn Amaro. Amaro, and he wrote a little bit, and he was saying that in his practice, and this is someone who's very mature in his practice when he wrote this. He said, "I'm really working on non-contentiousness." I thought, "Wow, isn't that so interesting?" how we get involved in subtle forms of contentiousness with other people, including in our own mind. That's stupid, right? We do that little thing inside our own head, that's contentiousness. We go there, we're trapped. We're afflicted ourselves. We're unfree in that moment. Right? That's what I think the Buddha is talking about when he talks about settling our quarrels. Right? We're still advocating for our rights. We're still speaking up for the oppressed, etc. We're doing what we can uh, at whatever scale we're trying to take action in. But we can do it with a freedom and a lovingness uh, inside our own minds. How do we actually do this? That's the question, right? So, here's another quote from the Buddha that if we attack others, it harms us. You know, realizing that can motivate us toward this unilateral virtue that I'm going to get real practical about momentarily. And also I think there's an appreciation, to quote Ajahn Chah, that if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll be completely happy. You know, And I think the art here is to be continually letting go even as we seek justice. Right? Isn't that an interesting art? Both are true. It's not an either-or. You know, We're letting go, we're letting go, especially we're letting go of this thought, this feeling, this sensation, this moment, this clinging, this resisting, this anger, this craving. We're letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, even as our loving heart leads us to seek justice, including in our most intimate relationships. So that's kind of a frame, all right? How to do it. Well, okay. the Buddha had a little list, as you may have noticed. So this kind of summarizes in one slide the behavioral do's and don'ts that the Buddha offers. As he put it himself a long time ago, see for yourself. See what might be useful for you. So we have the five precepts, which are typically described negatively. Thich Han and others have described them more affirmatively. I'll do them in the traditional form. So in terms of what is virtue, unilateral virtue, we don't kill other beings. Right? And it gets interesting to extend this or not, you know, around being a carnivore. It's yeah, very interesting territory. We also don't steal. We don't take what's not freely offered. And that too is an interesting exploration. What if your teenage daughter's diary? Is lying there open on the coffee table? Is it freely offered to your gaze, tempting as it may be? All right, gets very interesting, right? So, or another one is we don't um, speak falsely, which I'll get to that in a moment, and we don't abuse ourselves and others through sexuality. Again, abuse. Think about you know what that means to you. These are not. Um, commandments, handed down from on high. These are training precepts that we undertake, knowing that we may well fall short, and yet that doesn't mean we didn't undertake it sincerely, and we can still undertake it again sincerely after falling short. And then we have not abusing intoxicants. Um, This gets translated in two subtly different ways that are quite significant. One way to translate it is, um, you know, I undertake the training... precept to abstain from intoxicants, I think it's wines, liquors, and other intoxicants, for they cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. So that's a no exceptions statement. Another way this is translated is I vow to or I undertake the training precept to abstain from wines, liquors, and other intoxicants that cloud the mind or lead to heedlessness. That's kind of like the get out of something card. But so you see for yourself what's true for you, you know, and what you can afford to do or not. An awful lot of relational harms, you know, have some kind of intoxication at their base of one kind or another. So. Then we have right livelihood, I'll move through that. Then I want to talk about wise speech, right speech, wise speech, because this is where the the real rubber meets the road. So basically the Buddha suggested, and we can see for ourselves, six criteria for wise speech. Five are sort of mandatory in his view. The sixth is desirable, but optional. So here we go. Speech is wise. It's right in the sense of leading to awakening for ourselves and other people. Speech is wise if it's well-intended. Beneficial. True. Timely. Not harsh. Tone is a real big one. And, if at all possible, desired by the other person. That's not a mandatory one, the last one. Sometimes it's not particularly wanted, but, you know, we got to say it, even if it makes them uncomfortable. I think one of the key... uh, capabilities to develop over here is the capacity to be engaged in what is beneficial and wholesome, even if it makes others uncomfortable. That gets very interesting. Can we do that? So those are the kind of classic do's and don'ts. So before we go further, I want to see if there are any questions or comments about this, especially in the real world of messy relationships. Please Do you want to look at, oh good, right, there you are. If you keep your end up, she can find you
1: so um, under right speech, when you say when or when it says beneficial, yeah. knowing that something that you might tell somebody might be true and well intended but not beneficial or or might mm. ha- hurt them or harm them or might not be timely, so I guess my question is when the the, the five m- mandates of yeah. right speech kind of, um, go against each other? Right. And how, to, how do we look at it?
0: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think we spend our life working, you know, working with it. For one, it's beneficial to all beings. So including yourself. So the other person, so I'm going to give you a hard example. I mean, one that comes up and I'm, I'm actually thinking of writing another little practice about this. When they want more from you than you want to give. Right. So let's suppose that's true. Whatever that might be. They're, you know, they're a friend who'd like to spend more time with you than you've got or want to give them or they want to be with you romantically. And it's just not there for you or um, they want to get hired, but you're just not going to hire them. Or they want to do a project with you, and, you know, right? What is it? That's tricky business, isn't it? So then how do we talk about it in an honest and real way? And these are seen as guidelines, not do's or don'ts, which gives us room to work with them. They're, they're an exploration, and it's the exploration as well that nourishes on the path of our own practice. So wrestling with this. I think a moral person wrestles with these sorts of things and doesn't just feel, oh, I've got it all figured out. So then you think about, well, if I were to act like I want to give you what you want from me, even though it's not really true, that wouldn't help you in the long run because I couldn't sustain it. Also, me being there would kind of fill the slot that would be obs- that's obstructed now, that would be better filled by someone who really wants to give you that, who really wants to hire you, who really wants to be with you romantically, or really wants to, you know, give themselves over to you in, in terms of more time, right? So you think about that. I also think about the ways in which uh, truth. Uh, is important in systems. You know, I've been I've been in systems. I've been in situations that were half a cult, at least. You know, or other kinds of situations. And if truth is blocked in a system, including in a family system, like family secrets, stuff like that. Um, if truth is blocked, it doesn't create benefit. So what's beneficial for the larger whole? You know. Um, so I I think about that, and I also ask myself, am I just being a glib Buddhist? You know? Am I just using my clever lingo to let me off the hook, to avoid my own discomfort? I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. It's a fair question that helps us kind of stay between the lines, you know, going forward. So that part. And the timely one, You know, again, what is timely, right? So I think that there's a certain amount of kind of like ambush sharing, right? Where we just drop the bomb on someone, it's like, what? You know, and there's just no basis for it. Or they drop the bomb on us. That doesn't work so well. On the other hand, what do you do with the person who stonewalls you? They never have time to really hear what you've got to say. Or as soon as they can kind of detect that you've got a complaint or a want, and it's okay to make a complaint, you have a want that's not being fulfilled. You have a grievance. They can kind of feel it, you know. They get the vibe. Then suddenly they've got to go do an errand or something like that. You know that happens a few times. Gosh, um, you know maybe it's okay to just sort of insist on making the communication. So that would be my two cents about that. Right? It's okay. <gasps> yeah, okay, good. All right. Any other comments or questions about this business? Great. Over here. I I will say on this um, that knocking before entering is important because I think that often we, we don't respect the attention of other people enough and we also live in a culture that's incredibly invasive around attention and just presumptuous I mean one of the latest things that are a real goad to practice are these robo calls, these robo telemarketing calls. You literally can't tell them, take me off the list. You know, they just, it's a robo call. And we live in a culture where it's like, oh, well, you know, it's okay. It's just sort of presume. And so I, I myself try to be kind of thoughtful and respectful when I'm on top of my game, which is not always for sure of do I have your permission? Do I have your consent to give me your attention right now? or to go to the next step of giving me your attention in this interaction, rather than just presume it. Oftentimes we, you know, in in informal situations, we're giving each other that kind of consent, but it's not always given. And if we started there, and we really got buy-in from the get-go, that okay, the person has five minutes for this, or 10 minutes for this, or five hours for this, then it would have much more of a cause or condition that would be a good foundation. Yeah, please.
2: So I was uh, recently stymied in a conversation with Could you someone. speak up? That would sure. be great. Okay. Um, who I assumed was, whose sort of political views were very similar to mine, and the topic of Edward Snowden came up. And um, her argument was the methods by which he got the information were based on falsehoods and manipulation of data. And the conversation went from what actually happened to the ethics and morality of do the ends justify the (laughs) means. And this just happened. And then looking at these qualities of right speech, I'm wondering, in that sort of an engagement, what kinds of principles would be beneficial to look at in terms of Edward Snowden's actions and what is being benefited and the ends justifying the means?
0: Right. Um, well, first, um, you know, in a, from this seat, we're asked not to go political. And so is a larger frame there. And, and, and second, I, I won't particularly comment on the, the facts as I know them altogether. And we'll just sort of, if I could, make a couple key points here. I think the first one is maybe the most important word here, at least in a Buddhist frame, and really see for yourself, is, where am I here? Uh, This one. What are your intentions? What were the intentions? Right? And one of the great breakthroughs of Buddhism relative to the early um, Hindu... Uh, Jain time, was the Buddha's emphasis on intention rather than just ritualistic action. That it's intention that really creates karma in this life. Who knows about other ones? But in this life, for sure, what are the intentions behind, you know, wise speech, behind thoughts of, uh, or acts of thought, word, or deed? And I think sometimes of my relatives in North Dakota, where my father uh, was born, and I've got all this California, Marine County, sophistication, therapists, whatever. And I, I know them. They're like rougher on the edges. You know, they're ranchers. are rougher on the edges and all that. And, yeah, you, know, you can just totally see these are well-intended people. They may not be doing perfect nonviolent communication. You know, they didn't go to Esalen and get their training. But they're well-intended. They have a good heart. Even if it comes out a little bumpily sometimes. A little rough around the edges, maybe. But that's right there. What are our intentions? And you can flip the other way. People who say the right words. Haven't we all, especially in California, been around people who say the right words? But inside, your body's just going... You find yourself wanting to cross your legs and kind of <laughs> get out because you're feeling something. It's not right. You know, something not well-intended there. So number one, intention. Number two... Um, What's interesting, again, to ask yourself from the standpoint of unilateral virtue, these are just guidelines. But for me, when I'm in this zone, and you know it when you're in it, you may be getting fired up, but you're not losing it. You may be saying strong words that are accurate, but they're not inflammatory. They're not derogatory. They're not motivated by ill will. Ill will may be arising in you, the desire to punish, or the desire to make them, you know, hurt because they hurt you. But if you're in the zone, you don't, you don't act upon it. It doesn't invade the mind and remain to hijack you. Right? You don't need to be a saint to function in this way. Okay? Isn't it true? that when you're in this zone in a funny kind of way you're more powerful you're stronger you're not sputtering you're not disqualifying yourself by losing it by flaming the other person can't get distract can't distract the conversation from some side issue because you slipped and used some word right they, they kind of got to deal with what you're saying or the odds go up that they have to deal with what you're saying if you're in that zone. And also when, you're, when we're in this zone, there's something about it, I think, that feeds us, that strengthens us and protects us in our dealings with other people. It also is the best odd strategy to uh, receive or earn or cause good treatment from the other person because we're less inflammatory, they're seeing us walk the talk, and it tends to call them to walk the talk themselves. It's not a guarantee, but it increases the likelihood of good treatment from other people. So um, when I I have written about what I call the 80-20 rule in relationships, okay, of all kinds. I think there's a place for the 20 that's about them, Asking for what we want naming what's actually happening calling it um, encouraging greater skillfulness you know uh, leaving that book open with that passage marked on their bedside table whatever you know um, inviting people to dinner who can have a diff- who have a certain kind of relationship who can then talk about it whatever it might be Okay, that's the 20. But as quickly as possible, as much as possible, focusing mainly on my side of the street, one's own side of the street. How can I be a more skillful partner? How can I clean up my own act? How can I relentlessly take maximum reasonable personal responsibility for your grievances with me, your complaints about me, your longings, your wishes, your needs, your desires? How can I go to the max of that? Not beyond the max. And you get to decide what the max is unilaterally. You get to decide what's reasonable and unreasonable, okay? But if we, or if I've just known it for myself, when I started really zeroing out my wife's complaints with me, kind of like, partly because I grew up in a very fault-finding home, so I don't like it when people are finding faults, you know? So my wife once said to me, Rick, you're so OCD, I went, no, I'm just impeccable. But only someone with OCD would say that. But anyway, um, my point is, you know, it's very powerful. And you realize, wow, you're you're reframing freedom. You're reframing autonomy. You're reframing your own self-interest to do the max of responding to their complaints, to make them go away, you know? And, uh, And when you do that, you feel a kind of, power inside yourself and a dignity and a self-respect even if they say to you oh there's still more but deep in your heart you know wow i've really maxed it here you know i really have i know i've done it and to the max and i'm willing to hear the next thing but <whistles> i've done a lot you know they put you in a much stronger position finally to ask for your wants to be met as well did you see that kind of flip it's really powerful to flip that way And think about what is it like to be with someone who takes maximum reasonable personal responsibility at work or at home for giving you what you want. After a while, you'll be like, whoa, what do you want? (laughs) You know, because I want to keep you around. Okay. Okay, maybe another person or two, then we'll move more into healthy assertiveness. What do you think of this idea? And for yourself, your own sweet spot of unilateral virtue. I've taught this workshop a lot, and either I'm doing something different or you're different or something, because there are fewer... Great, over there, somebody in the back? Hello? I see the finger of God pointing, right? (laughs) Microphone? Someone got volunteered, I think. Okay, microphone coming. And I love talking about hard situations, too. You know, how do you sustain unilateral virtue with people, and I'm going to use a technical term from the DSM-5, the Psychiatric Manual how do you sustain unilateral virtue with assholes? Right? I'm allowed to use that word from this seat. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, My question's about the word that you used, accuracy, and about the word lie. Because sometimes when you're involved with someone, you're close, and your perceptions are so different that you or they perceive one or the other as, that's not true, that's a lie. Right. How do you overcome that bridge? Do you just say, I accept that? I mean, is that the Buddhist?
0: Yeah. If So if I understand you right, and I might have missed a word because the fan's up front, a little white noise generator here for me, but first, I do think it's really helpful. Again, truth. What is the truth? Our, In my view, there is a truth. Our perceptions of the truth are fallible and always and uncertain and limited. Okay. But there is what it is, okay? So we try to get at, what are the facts here? Um, You know, did we have an agreement about what was going to happen? Maybe we actually never really had an agreement, even though I thought we did, because you never really agreed to it in your heart. Or your meaning of the word on time is vastly different than mine, (laughs) for whatever reason, including perhaps culture. Okay, okay. So we're trying to get at that. So I think it's quite helpful before we jump. And I have saved myself so much grief by not blasting people before I really got a clear idea of what the facts were. You know, And I've been embarrassed by jumping into a situation and then later on discovering that, oops, that email never got sent, actually. Or when I reread that email stream, uh-oh, I actually had promised to do that. Or something like that, you know? So slow it down. Give yourself the gift of time. As someone who watches couples interact often problematically, a lot of the problem is they're just going too fast. Slow it down. Pause. Give yourself, you know, the gift of time. Tara Brock's point, the sacred pause. So that's one. What are the facts? And I I find it's quite helpful to also focus on the facts from now on. Or what's going to happen from now on? most quarrels are about the past, if you think about it, and occasionally you really do have to process the past. what really happened? There was a trauma or there was a betrayal, or you know something happened that I need to know will never happen again, or this relationship is going to shrink fast, you know to the basis that 's actually safe for me and I 'm willing to be unilateral about that um, but uh a lot I find for myself that I don't need to argue about the past with people. I'm just kind of zeroed in on, okay, what's gonna happen from now on? Whatever the past was, I don't know. I might I had my part, you had your part, whatever, what's gonna happen from now on? Right? Thank you.
2: So,
0: yeah. And I find that's very positive. You know, rather than argue about the past, make requests for the future. And then know in your heart that if they don't meet your request, it's not a threat, it's just a fact. Causes have effects. There may be consequences. Unilaterally over here, you may take a step back or you may shift in a certain direction or they may keep your body, but they don't have your mind anymore in the way they used to. One kind of, maybe a job or what have you. But um, this focus on the future for me is very helpful. The structure even of making requests that's well defined so that it's clear to everybody, especially when something's tricky. You don't need to do this when it's all fine. But when it's not so fine, making a very well defined request for the future is a very powerful method. Anybody else? Great. Tom, over here, uh, Mike up here. Thank you for doing this, by the way. You're definitely getting a lot of exercise. <laughs> as we ping-pong. It's like playing tennis where you hit the ball over there, then you hit it way over there, and after a while they go crazy. But I'll try not to do that for you. Okay. Uh, Thank you for the day, Rick. It's been great. Um, You've outlined uh, nirvana in terms of communications and relating and so on. Um, What if you're saddled with a lifetime of bad habits in terms of getting along with people? I mean, can we flip a, a light switch and make this change?: How do we do it?: Okay, so first, I don't know if I've spoken about Nirvana, particularly in the <laughs> technical sense at all, but thank you, Tom. Um, well, I, I, I'll say a couple things. I think first, if you if you look at the pie chart of causes for how things are for people, on average, about a third of those causes are genetic. Ballpark. The other, roughly on average, and for some people it's genetics have more or less of an effect, but roughly on average. The other causes are environmental and psychological, our reactions to events. All right? And for me, that's where we can do a lot. You know, we can focus on the expression of genes. You know, epigenetics, it's called to some extent, but the genes themselves, at least as we we're endowed with them, are pretty stable. Okay, so first of all, we can do what we can to put ourselves in situations in which can, we, we can really flourish. So maybe you know for yourself that you were raised uh, in a situation where there were traumatic events or there were a lot of threats or. Or maybe you just know by your genetic constitution you're an anxious person. So maybe you do really well in relationships with people who are relatively reassuring and unthreatening, right? On the other hand, maybe you recognize that you're someone who's uh, more toward the spirited end of the temperamental spectrum. You do better in stimulating situations. And maybe ones where there's a certain amount of juicy conflict and rough and tumble because that's better for you. So that would, I think, be a thing to say. It's okay to put ourselves in places where we're going to be well served. Um, To put it a certain kind of way around dating and mating, I I feel I should write a really short book on the secrets of dating and mating because I have a whole thing about it. But I'm not going to do that workshop here, but a way of putting it is, you know, if you're interested in that territory and by some fairly quick threshold that's reasonable, like by the third time you have coffee or something, if they don't think you're great, whoop, they're disqualified. They're not a qualified prospect. You know, so you want to put yourself with people that bring out the best in you. And I think it's important to watch, do we tend to seek situations again and again and again, Freud called it the repetition compulsion, that are some kind of reenactment where we're still trying to get blood from that stone? you know, and that sends us down tunnel after tunnel after tunnel, down which there's really no cheese. Well, one way to work with your own tendencies is to go down those tunnels where there's some cheese, you know, where the causes and conditions are more likely to give you what you need. So I think about that part, okay. Then what we can do inside ourselves. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive answer, but it's my on-the-spot response. I think it's incredibly important, based on the science of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, and the evidence all around us because evidence of mental change is evidence of neural change inside the natural frame. There is so much evidence that sincere, sustained effort can truly pull the weeds and grow new flowers in the garden of the heart. So much evidence about that. And I think we can't do anything about the past, but we can do a lot about the next moment. There's a saying, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. That's, in my view, the most important minute of our life, the next one, minute after minute after minute. Right? And so I'm like the Buddha. You know? I'm not trying to lift myself up. I'm just, he was so clear about the power of practice. He taught practice. He practiced himself. So many other people in so many traditions, including secular traditions, have really, with their own practice transform themselves over time. You know, so... um, And then the question becomes, what's useful for you to do, right? Now, to finish up here, you may know the character in Buddhist history, Angulimala. He's a fairly famous character because he was a serial killer. Uh, Apparently a true individual. He had a misguided teacher who told him that the way to heaven was through murdering others. Like... Hello? What's wrong with you? But anyway, so he had a mala, a necklace. Don't mean to freak you out, but a necklace of the fingers of those he had killed. A little weird. So the story goes that, and again, you consider it true or not, nothing else is metaphorical. He approached the Buddha seeking, because he, he thought that he should kill the Buddha. So he chased the Buddha, and now we're going to move outside the natural frame, no matter how fast Angulimala ran to catch and kill the Buddha, the Buddha was always in front of him. And then finally Angulimala became incredibly frustrated and he said to the Buddha, he called out, stop, stop, why don't you stop? And the Buddha turned and said to him, Angulimala, I stopped a long time ago. Why haven't you? In other words, I've stopped in my mind fueling the fires of greed and hatred, heartache and delusion. I stopped that a long time ago. I've stopped inside. There's a stillness here inside. You're still moving with agitation. You see the meaning of that? Isn't that powerful? I've stopped a long time ago. And I I think sometimes we have that in relationships. The other person's agitating and and they're trying to get into a tussle with us. They're trying to suck us into this very familiar script in our relationship with them. And for whatever reason, including maybe the good fortune of coming to Spirit Rock or what have you, you're like, I'm not playing that role anymore. I know you keep casting me in that role. You keep trying to put these lines in my mouth. No, really, that, I'm no longer in that movie. I've stopped. When will you? See the freedom? There's a freedom in stopping, you know? So that's part one. And then apparently what happened was Angulimala became a student of the Buddha. And he began to work on his bad
1: habits.
0: (laughs) Right? And and he he did. He became uh, a monastic. He really trained. And it's said that he progressed very far along, actually, toward awakening. Um, And one time, it is said in the suttas, he came to the Buddha and he complained. Because as he went into various villages, people recognized him. Whoa, you know, you're Angulimala, a serial killer. And they throw rocks at him or yell at him. And he he said to the Buddha, hey, I'm like a monk now. Why are they being mean to me? And the Buddha said, you know, you're not creating any new results, any new karmas or consequences. You've stopped in some way. But there's still, you have to bear and deal with the consequences of things that have happened to you in the past. And, you know, and I think that's part of the truth in life, too. Um, Sometimes we know we're not doing that anymore. We're not losing our cool with our kids anymore, or we're not any longer abusing intoxicants. We don't do that thing we used to do in our work life, but there are consequences. And we still have to live with those consequences here today. But both can be true. We've stopped but we still need to bear and deal with the consequences of those earlier versions of ourselves rippling forward in time. And that takes me to, honestly, in the most important minute of my life, what seeds am I sowing for the one being among all others that I have the highest duty to, the one I have the most power over, my future self? What kind of you know, seeds of weeds or seeds of flowers am I casting or fertilizing? We're growing; that my future self will inherit, right? And you know, so one way to think of it is, wow, I'm still dealing today. You know, there's a saying in medicine: good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment, <laughs>
2: right?
0: I've had a lot of experiences, and you know, some of them I'm still dealing with today. And that, when you realize, wow, I'm still inheriting the wind; I'm inheriting the the bitter fruits of the seeds I planted a while ago. That can motivate us to plant fewer of those in the most important minute of our life, the next one, going forward. Yeah. And then, maybe the last thing on that point again, for me, it just goes to this um, thing I was saying earlier about this taboo on recognizing that you're a good person. You know, there's this metaphor that if you buy a house that's been boarded up for maybe 30 years and you turn on the faucet, all this crud comes out, right? And the natural inclination, all that smelly, dirty, germ-filled water, you want to turn off the faucet, but we have to let the faucet run. And so first, sometimes as we clean up our messes or improve, what first comes out of us is that, like, that smelly water. I think there's a natural trajectory, this side of enlightenment in upsets in relationships where we kind of spew a bit or a lot. The other person spews some too. But then eventually, one, if not both people, start moving into unilateral virtue. And as time flows this way, you know, oh, that's the trajectory of a good fight. Right? Okay, you got it, All right? Okay, good. That's a good fight. That's real. That's realistic. You know, that's what's possible. But at least there's a soft landing, okay? And sometimes we need to kind of let the water flow, including the air sludgy stuff, to kind of clear it out and see what's really going on here and then come to that soft landing rather than, you know, do what John Wellwood calls the spiritual bypass and pre-impose a kind of superficial closure beforehand um, through our white light experiences, etc. Part one. Part two, in the metaphor including ourselves, let's remember that even though the water contained all that poison or toxin, the mind, if you will, contained all that anger, all that ill will, all that schadenfreude or envy or hurt, what have you, all that addictiveness, what have you, the water itself is always pure. Every molecule of H2O is always intact and pure. In the same way, even flowing through us, you know, the underlying substrate, the underlying mind, the underlying nature of mind. Awareness itself, so. the deepest layers of the psyche, I think, are always loving and beautiful and wise. It's like the tiles of the, of the mosaic might be kind of cruddy, but the grout itself is good. And you can have a growing faith in that in yourself and look to that in yourself and looked at that in other people. With my mom, who had a big, difficult personality, no longer alive, very loving. She expressed her love by helping you improve yourself a lot. And after a while, I started ignoring my mom's personality because I was so reactive to it. And I just kind of looked through the tiles to the grout. I saw her good heart. I saw her good intentions. I saw her lovingness. I was her first child after several miscarriages. She wanted me dearly, even if she drove me crazy a lot when I was a kid. You know, I kind of ignored her personality. And in some ways, that's what we have to do. You know, we kind of just look past the persona to the goodness there, and that is good for us as well as benevolent toward them. Maybe I could go on to assertiveness in some concrete ways, and so we can end on time. Is that okay? Yeah. Hopefully, this is okay. I don't mean to blather on here. Okay, so. I've talked about this, kindness and assertiveness, all right. Yeah. So, what do I mean by it? First of all, it means speaking your own truth in relationships, being for yourself. What supports it? So you might think of this as kind of like a pre-flight checklist, alright? You might have a lot of this covered. Uh, In my personal experience, for every one person who is just flaming and beating up other people and dogmatically pushy, there are probably 19 people who inhibit appropriate assertiveness, appropriate healthy assertiveness. So which is the larger issue? So what are some of the things that support your own healthy assertiveness? Being on your own side, resourcing yourself, Um, you know, recognizing what the actual truth is, finding refuges. In Buddhism, traditionally, three refuges are the teacher, the teaching, and the community of the taught, in a nutshell. And you can add to that things that might be meaningful to yourself. One of the things that really, um, two things have been very important for me in practice over the last ten or so years One of them is establishing my purpose in life pretty routinely and kind of returning to it as a place of refuge. Um, And the other is just taking refuge in general uh, in various things. I used to do that very formally every day for sure. I didn't go to bed without doing that, uh, including with a felt sense of the refuges being present for you, whatever they might be. Uh, For me, refuges have included the divine, Uh, practice, you know, just plugging along as a kind of refuge, or a sense of awareness as a refuge, or wisdom teachings as a refuge, or the love of others as a refuge. You know, whatever might be a refuge for you that helps us, you know, be more assertive. So you might think about that as a personal practice. You know, taking a few minutes each day to identify what your own refuges are and kind of establishing yourself in a felt sense of them. Not so much as something you go to, but something you are abiding as. Huh? And the one thing I just emphasize there, taking care of the big things so you don't grumble about the little ones. I see oftentimes people in relationships of various kinds bicker about little things. The truth is they're running on empty. That's the real issue. They're fried. Uh, they're tired. They're not dealing with some health issues. There's some kind of major craziness in the family system or the relationship that needs to be addressed. And so they argue about, you know, how to load the dishwasher or, you know, like a 30-minute disagreement about what time to put the kids to bed. But the real issue is they haven't had sex for a year, let's say. Or the real issue is that, um, you know, they don't really have a plan for dealing with their finances. Or the real issue is that the other person is half sloshed by dinner time and nobody's talking about it. So take care of the big things so we don't tend to quarrel so much. Or we can be more forgiving or easygoing about the little ones. So these are kind of keys, right? Okay, so far. And then in terms of um, how to do it, and then I'm going to make sure we have time for a closing practice here. Okay? So these are things that I've seen. One is keep your eyes on the prize. I've seen so many couples in, or of all kinds, you know, parent-child situations, including adult kids, romantic partners, work settings, where people, as it were, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. In other words, uh, it's kind of like a 10-rung ladder. What you want to do is get to the next rung. And sometimes people get so focused on getting up to the eighth or tenth rung. That, it, that they don't consolidate their gains right here, right? So, um, as a metaphor, I don't know if you ever saw the video Richard Pryor live on Sunset Strip. This was—he's a very gifted African American comedian, no longer alive. And this was right after he was smoking crack, and it blew up in his face and burned him very badly. So, and I'm a really bad actor, and you know, there's a kind of dialect going on here. Uh, but basically, um, you know, Richard Pryor just starts demonstrating a conversation he had with Jim Brown, the football uh, player and, and kind of teacher and so forth. And so Richard is basically saying, hey, you want to get high, da-da-da-da-da-da, Jim Brown, then he switches into the Jim Brown voice, Richard, what you going to do? Oh, no, don't get on my case, man, you know, it's just a little drug, well, no big deal. Richard, what you going to do? You know, and then they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the thing is, Jim Brown just kept his eyes on the prize. What are we talking about here? What's the bottom line? Rather than taking the bait of all this inflammatory stuff that would move us away. So I find that's really quite helpful. You know, what's the key here? What's the essence? And can you say it, right? That's a key. Another one, obviously, is to be grounded in the heart and to take care of what's on one's own side of the street. So you might again think of this, with a difficult relationship, is there one here or more in this little list I'm going through that pops out as, aha, that would make a big difference for me? To keep your eyes on the prize, you need to know what you want, including the deepest layer of what you want. Oftentimes, what one person wants is more intimacy, and the other person wants more autonomy, more respect for distance. Which then creates this dynamic of pursuer distancer, which is like a vicious cycle, right? So sometimes it really helps to appreciate what's that other person's imperative? What's their real stake on the table? Is it respect? Is it autonomy? Is it safety? Is it connection or closeness? Like I've had times with my wife where I thought we were talking about how to load the dishwasher. And she was talking about, hey, are we together in raising a family, the biggest undertaking of our lives? Right? Or other times she thought it was about loading the dishwasher and me it was about you know, respect for my independence, respect for my autonomy. Like you're not going to be bossing me around here, right? You know, like that. I'm open to requests, orders I don't do so well with, etc. See what I mean? So seeing what is the high priority, For the other person behind the surface of what the apparent issue is and seeing that in ourselves and honestly being brave enough to name what is really important to us in this situation, in this argument, in this relationship, what what really matters to us. Okay, so far? And then we'll do one more, then let's talk about nightmare scenarios or lesser situations. Communicating, I think, in my opinion, that it really is, there's a place for trying to influence the other person. It's okay, right? Relationships a lot, especially important ones. There's a give and take, mutual influence. It's not out of bounds to try to influence others. The question is, am I influencing them for a wholesome end through wholesome means, right? And um, that said, I think what really works a lot is to communicate for ourselves, to discover our own truth, to name our own experience rather than trying to fix or change the other person. We say what we say, they do with what they do with it. right? I remember with my mother again sorry, mom up there in heaven, eight years ago, I guess, whatever, or wherever, etc. Um, you know, she gave us a lot of unwanted advice about raising our kids. Well, one. I wanted to raise our kids differently than how I was raised. Duh. Two, yeah. drove my wife crazy. Right? So I finally said to my mom, who I love and loved, I said, Mom, I request that from now on, Right. in other words, when things are tricky, it works to use pure form. Then it's all fine. You can be sloppy. But when it's a little dicey, it's like, whoop, whoop. Right? Okay. Mom, from now on, could you please never uh, (laughs) offer, uh, I chose my words carefully, I thought about it, an evaluation or advice about how we're raising the kids, unless Jan or I specifically ask for it. Okay, so I was on on top of my game there, you know, I, I thought about it, and I chose my words carefully, it was a clean request, I didn't blast her out of the water, I didn't flame on her, on the other hand, I was real clear. I wasn't mealy-mouthed about it. I didn't, pull, I didn't use euphemisms. You know, I just said it, okay, right? Her response was, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> I said, oh, well, well, good, then we won't have a problem, right? <laughs> and then, because I was zeroed in on the prize, I could have, right there, gone after her, her defensiveness. Oh, I don't do that, and argued about the past. I was focused on my prize, You know, no more, no mas, laid it down. And then what was interesting was, so I was speaking for myself. I knew I couldn't stop her, but I knew there would be consequences if she kept it up. Fewer visits to see the grandkids, just reality, you know? Okay, so I said it for myself. As a small point in passing, I watched her for the next half hour to hour start to say things repeatedly and then catch herself, because my mom mainly communicated through evaluating and advising in a lot of ways, you know, with good intentions behind it. Um, But at least for me, I did what I could do, make the request, make a clean request, be clear about it. After that, it was out of my hands. And that, for me, is a really empowering kind of communicating. Uh, NVC stands for nonviolent communication. It's a fantastic method developed by Marshall Rosenberg. The formula of it boils down to, in essence, when X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. And then sometimes there's a place, if you want, for making requests. So from now on, I request that, such and such. And said in one's own way, including in culturally appropriate ways in different settings. Now, X is neutral, clear, clear fair. Not, when you're a jerk, I feel mad. No. When we have an agreement that you're going to come home on time for dinner or at least call me on the way to let me know what's up, and for the third time this week you don't, that's what happened, right? When X happened. Then I feel why. I feel sad. I feel upset. Not, I feel you're an idiot, you know? I feel like, punching you in the face. No. I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel like there is something unjust because I need Z. Not, I need you to stop being a jerk, but I need to feel close with other people, especially the ones I'm raising kids with. Or I need to feel that um, I'm received. I'm heard. I'm understood by other people. I matter to other people. That's my deep need. Okay, that's a great formula, especially if things are getting really wobbly. And then last, just to finish up and then see what you think, um, focusing on solutions as appropriate. Uh, I find that's actually really important. You know, okay, what what would it look like if you got what you wanted from me? Right? And what do I need from you to give you that which you want from me from now on? Like, that's a positive focus. That's a solution focus. And what that might look like is not how people load the dishwasher, but what's actually happening in your mind. You know, I would like you, You know, in, if, if you want to know what it would look like if I got what I wanted from you, it would look like you're making a sincere effort to keep yourself present when we're talking for at least 10 to 20 minutes a day where we're connecting with each other. That's what it would look like. You're making that effort inside your own mind. And if your mind wanders, you're making a sincere effort to bring your mind back. Or what it would look like inside your own mind is that you would take more interest in my career, my work. Or perhaps, you know, at least sometimes, uh, you would do little things inside your mind to awaken more romantic or erotic interest in me. It's not so much perhaps that you know, things aren't happening, it's that I don't matter enough for you, to you, for you to make efforts inside your mind that I see you making for other people, for example. See what I mean? It's, this is, for me, reasonable territory, at least in my own view. Okay, enough kind of guidelines. How about situations or questions or comments? What do you think? Great. Right there? Microphone? All
1: oh, right, there we go. So uh, me and my older brother are business partners, so we might as well be a married couple. And uh, we're complete opposite. Uh, I tend to kind of try to enjoy and walk through life. And he's what I would call busy backsome, which is busy back soon. And uh, always just running place to place. He's a lawyer. I'm a businessman, you know, that type of stuff. And I'm about to have a conversation with him that's probably going to upset him a little bit just because I think that his goals for me are different than my goals for me. Um, And he wants to see me become a super successful businessman, rich millionaire, and he's going to be my right-hand man, lawyer, who's going to watch my back the whole time. And I'm about to have a conversation with him saying I want to offer a free service as opposed to because that will put me in, in... A kind of more advising situation um which people will be more willing to come ask for my help um and he's gonna say oh how are are we gonna make money how are we gonna make money and and then we're getting better at it but it tends to get a little heated up and then he makes me feel like i'm irresponsible is kind of what the the outcome is and i'm trying to figure out a way to relay relay my feelings without um without him thinking I'm just trying to be lazy and not... He's like, startups, you work 80 hours, 100 hours a week. You better get used to it. And I'm like, oh, then I don't want to start a business. That kind of sucks. So anyway, I'm about to have that conversation with him. I need a little bit of guidance. Right.
0: So thank you for saying that. And um, I'll just kind of walk through a few things to call out. All right? There's a... It's funny... In terms of mental health, the pie chart of causes of mental health and conventional psychology, two of the major slices of the pie have to do with not ruminating. You know, uh, um, Soaking Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, says, think the same thought again and again. That's OK. But 10 is enough, right? <laughs> you know, so rumination. Watch out for rumination. You know, neurons that fire together, wire together, especially if we're identified with that, which is what happens when we ruminate. Second key term is to have high distress tolerance. What that means is, can we tolerate our own distress? Can we tolerate certain feelings like anger or sadness or fear or inadequacy? Can we tolerate uh, the fears that get stirred up when we start moving closer to other people? Or the fears that get stirred up when we start separating more from other people? Or can we tolerate what gets stirred up when others are disappointed in us, perhaps? Or others feel that um, we're not um, giving them what they want? You know, for me, a very interesting edge is to really think about this territory where we can become much more comfortable with situations in which others want something from us that we don't want to give and often what i think we do is we hide it so i'm going to tell you a little thing about myself with my wife i've been married 31 years and we've known each other biblically for about 35 and we had a early time where we were kind of together and in with a bunch of other people in our lives we drifted apart came back together again then got married so during that early phase There was this moment that's kind of legendary in our relationship where my wife was then, not not married, named Jan. Jan, she wanted more from me than I wanted to give. And that was making her freak out that, uh uh-oh, we have to end this relationship. Or if he knows, I want more from him than he wants to give. You know, that I want to be more important to him than I am to him. You know, me... Uh-oh, right? It's kind of like, uh-oh. We have a lot of, we tend to hide the truth that, well, there's an asymmetry. We, we tend to act, I think, a lot like there's a symmetry. And often, there's asymmetry of one kind or another. And this was in my early 20s, and something kind of popped through me in that moment. You know, like there's a moment where something comes out of your mouth, and you go, wow, that was good. I have no idea where that came from. But uh, I said to her, Jan, you like me more than I like you. But that's okay. And I didn't mean it in any superior way. You know, I recognize that the time might come where the shoe is on the other foot. But it was okay. We didn't have to end our relationship. Because usually, especially romantic relationships, the early days, one person's more into the other than they're into you. You know, What do you do then? But it doesn't mean you have to end it when the truth is named. So I, I think about that. My larger point about that is to think about these kind of Ways in which we struggle to just name what's actually true. You want to spend more time with me than I've got to give you, and I'm not going to lie about that, or make up some kind of excuse or feel guilty, you know? Um, Or flip it around, you know? And it's kind of a weird relief. She was relieved, and it actually preserved our relationship, that it was okay, you know? So think about that in, in these kind of situations. Can we push through our own resistance to naming the truth when uh, we know it's going to be disappointing to other people, and um, that's part one. Then the other thing, part two, is to you know honestly be willing to be disenchanted. And you may know in Buddhist practice, the word disen- the word for disenchantment, nibbida, uh, in Pali, is a good word. It's not disenchanted like Ugh, disappointed, bombed. It's more like awaken from the spell, waking up from the dream. Disenchantment, you know, you want to see clearly, you become increasingly disenchanted uh, from the spell the mind casts, you know, the fears it's always whispering to us, or the promises of really sweet rewards. They're rarely that great. Or it'll all be wonderful if we could just be together. There's like an enchantment whispering to us, you know, in our mind. We wake up from that. We move toward dispassion which is a step further, and then awakening past that. So, you know, I think part of it is to let ourselves truly see others clearly. You know, and I find myself, including lately, um, having times where I realize there's this young, innocent, childlike longing quality that wants to see the best or imagine the best or just kind of assume that others will take good care of me or something like that. And, oh, we're not really best friends, are we? This is just business to you, truly, right? Or, oh, I got it. Don't send a duck to eagle school. That's a saying. I got it. I thought you were an eagle, and I wanted you to be an eagle, and you're a duck. And I should just quit torturing you by trying to turn you into an eagle. That's right. Like, can we tolerate disenchantment? And I think that's another thing, too, where we start looking over there and we see that others, maybe as a mosaic, have lots of mixed motives. There's a lot of complexity. There's the surface. There's the depth. And we kind of see more clearly the totality. And then we try to scale our relationship to the causes and the conditions that, where am I here, that are genuinely present there. Or name to the person, you know, well... Again, you want me to be this certain kind of person, but for me to be that person, I need you to be that kind of person to me. And is that really true for you? Thank you. Maybe one more person, then we'll finish on a nice practice. Okay, all the way in the back. You're backlit. So you see the man in the back, hand up. Great. See him over there? She's running around. Great. And then we'll do a practice and finish at five. I think you've described almost everything that that we do in our relationship that doesn't work sometimes with one exception. And so I'd like your comments on uh you are x uh you you didn't mean x, you know, mm-hmm. you are, you know, you think x boxing the other person. Yeah. You know, as you point out, thank you and and others who study relationships, point out, too, that kind of accusation is very explosive in relationships, especially when it comes at us with topspin. And particularly for those in the room, how many of you in the room get paid to help people? therapist Oh, great. Like me, therapist, whatever. You know, it's really kind of easy to sort of slip into it, right? Um... I just think it's so important to be careful about that and to ask questions. So what I try to do is I recognize that if I go there, it's one thing to name the truth about what actually happened. And it could be, for me, it's, there's a place for naming you know, my impression of what's going on over there in you, what I really see over there. But to, but to do that in a way that has a kind of gentleness around it and a diffidence, a not being so sure, because otherwise it can be really quite explosive. And there too, I do tend to focus on from now on. Right? And I'm honestly a little suspicious of interactions or relationships that are about people describing each other to each other. Because I think usually that's, a defense against real intimacy, and a defense against real self-expression. Because if I'm saying you're X, Y, Z, I don't have to open my own heart. I don't have to name my own experience. right? I'm accusing you. I'm and, if, and as soon as I start saying what's true about you, I'm on very shaky ground. But as soon as I describe what this body is feeling now, or did feel then, I'm the world's greatest authority on my own experience. You're the world's greatest authority in your own experience. It's your own experience. Another person says, that's not what you're really feeling. I'm just not even that interested. I'm like, okay, fine. I know what I'm feeling over here. So, think about the ways in which our typical habitual patterns of relationship are a way to avoid closeness Or avoid true autonomous self-expression. Even if it looks like um, a sort of natural way to do it. Because a lot of times people connect through quarreling. Except it's a way to preserve a kind of optimal distance. And then I think it's okay to make requests of other people. You know, hey, let's not do that in this relationship. And then you have to deal with it if they do or they don't. So I want to do one last little practice here. And I'm going to end on this practice. Um, I'm going to end very close to 5 when I ring the bell the last three times in about nine minutes. If you can stick around, Uh, we'll end. okay? And I'll happily stick around myself a little bit longer. So I want to show you a picture. Here we go. You might have seen this photo before, one of my workshops. there are four monkeys in this picture. All right. Yeah. Four monkeys in this picture. See the little one there? The little eyes right around there.
2: Right.
0: And you can see the ways in which that's opened in our heart. And one of the most powerful ways to express loving kindness, including for difficult people, is to see them as a little child. You might have to go all the way back to the day they were born. I don't know. <laughs> But you see them as a little child, to find that inside yourself. So let's finish here with a quiet practice. I'll give you a little bit of guidance, but then I'll be quiet, about expanding the circle of us to radiate good wishes, warm-hearted wishes for all beings. So you might start (laughs) by wishing the being well who's in your chair or standing in your shoes? The one who's suffering you know more than anyone else? The one whose longings and good intentions you know better than anyone else? The one who is banged hard by life? affected in various ways, wishing yourself well. Expanding further to include others in this room. Perhaps people you know, many people you don't know. All of us are aging. All of us have challenges and losses. Can you wish others well in this room? And then expanding further, including animals and plants creatures of the sea, the earth, and the sky. Expanding your good wishes further, also including people in your life who are not here in this room today. Expanding in your own way, as you like, for the next several minutes, out to include all beings, all beings certainly on planet earth and perhaps beyond, Those you like, those you don't know, those you don't like, those who have helped you, those who have wronged you, those who've had no effect on you whatsoever. May all beings live with ease. And as we finish up here, you can also sense how you too have been uh, contained in this web of loving-kindness that others are radiating. You can feel a kind of reverberation of the receiving of the kindness and goodwill of others, including in this room, and the sending it out yourself as well. And as we end here, I'd like to say most sincerely to each one of you, most of whom I don't know from much background, I'd like to say to you most sincerely, practicing right speech myself, I know that you are a good person. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. It's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.